0: The New Testament reading is taken from Luke, chapter 22, verses 24 to 38. Luke, chapter 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day, until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough.
1: thanks Joanna and morning everybody lovely to be um, with them some people in real life Um, although I know most folks are watching uh, at home so uh, good morning to you I wish them we were slick enough to know which camera to to look at for that but we haven't quite got uh, there yet now earlier on in the uh, week I emailed the church database asking everyone to give me one word to describe firstly the attitude of a non-Christian friend or family member towards their faith. And while I was encouraging to uh, get a few replies saying words like curious or respectful, uh, most of the 50 plus replies I got used words like deluded, suspicious, weird, negative, cynical, childish, your thing, but definitely not to be shared with others, which obviously is more than one word because some people actually cheated. But I also asked folks to give me one word to describe what impact those kinds of attitudes had on your faith in Christ. And again, there was the odd word like encouraged or proud, but most of you responded with words beginning with the letter D. Discouraged, demotivated, disheartened, defensive, as well as sad, confused, frustrated, and awkward. And again, some of you, added a few extra words. Like, I can't really talk about it. Or, it makes me start to wonder, is this real? Or is it just me? None of my friends believe this. As we dive back into Luke's gospel this morning, I want you to know that Luke starts his account of Jesus' life by telling us that he has gathered information he's spoken to eyewitnesses and he's putting together an orderly account for a bloke called Theophilus so that Luke 1 verse 4 so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught the first generation of Christians uh, they were starting to get arrested and thrown in prison even killed for following Christ and it looks like Theophilus might have been starting to wobble in his faith. (laughs) Part of me wonders if maybe he went to a carol service and he heard those great words that the angel said to the shepherds uh, that Jesus uh, was bringing good news of great joy to all people. And Theophilus was going, really? Good news? (laughs) If people are getting locked up for it, is it really good news? And Luke wants Theophilus and uh, the rest of his readers, therefore us, to know certainty. That's what he's saying. That's what he's trying to do in this gospel. So that we don't give up. So we don't doubt or become discouraged or defensive in our faith. So we don't just privatize it and stop sharing it with others. So friends, if you're finding it hard... To stand for Jesus today because uh, of what uh, people we care about think of us or, or what the world out there says about us. This gospel is great medicine for us. And especially, so I think, this passage that we've got in Luke 22 this morning. As the first thing that we're to see here is that uh, to stand for Jesus is totally countercultural. To stand for Jesus means being a servant like Jesus. It was the night before Jesus was crucified and and he's just shared a highly emotional meal with his disciples where he's visualized his, his, his death in bread and wine. And then we read in verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Folks, I don't know about you, but I've come to expect my children to uh, have the odd squabble about who is the best at the dinner table from time to time. But these are grown adults who Jesus has just told he's about to suffer and die for. His blood poured out for them, his, his body broken for them. And all they can do is think about themselves. And we might think, how could they? But it's not just them, is it? I think a lot of us reckon that we're pretty humble people. But then when someone suggests that we might fail at something, or or, as has happened with the disciples here, that we might betray someone we love. We bristle at the very idea of that. No, Not me. No, 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 no. I won't let you down. I'm better than that. Or perhaps when someone else gets a leg up, they get an opportunity that we don't get. We, we might think, why them? I'm every bit as good as they are. Or perhaps you've served in some way and no one's thanked you. Now don't get me wrong, don't mishear me. Of course we must thank people for the way they serve us and I'm, I'm so glad for the many ways people serve in our church here. But when we do things looking for thanks, looking for recognition, we we'll become just like Jesus' disciples here. We make it all about ourselves and about people noting us, noticing us. But Jesus cuts right across that way of thinking in verse 25, doesn't he? As he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. We live in a culture full of people who are very keen, uh, with a very keen sense of their own importance. In our world, greatness is bestowed in a a title. Greatness involves exercising power. Greatness means being highly thought of. And yet here's Jesus saying to his followers, not so with you. (laughs) Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you, as the one who serves. It's that time of year where, well, in a normal world, the Oscars would be about to happen. And so after the Oscars, there's usually this massive great big slap-up meal where the Leonardo DiCaprio's and the Matt Damon's and the Scarlett Johansons and the Kate Winslet's would sit down at table to enjoy a caviar and truffles and smoked salmon. I don't know what the fuss is about caviar, do you? Um, Actually, granted, I've never had it, but I mean, who really wants to eat uh, raw fish eggs? But folks, who is the greater at that table, around that table, the people sitting down to eat their caviar or the waiters and the waitresses? Well, in our eyes, it's those sitting at table enjoying the caviar, isn't it? But here is Jesus, the greatest one of all, the one whose hands threw stars into space, the one before whom all angels bow. The one who the Bible tells us sits on the throne of the universe, the one who is king of a kingdom that will never end. And he says to us, I am among you as Leonardo DiCaprio. No. I've come as a waiter. I'm not here for you to meet my needs. I've come to meet yours. Jesus' kingdom is an others' first kingdom because we have an others' first king. So folks, will you look at your king? I wonder how you need to follow his lead this week and say, I am among you as one who serves. We don't get many opportunities, do we, these days to say, well, to be, to be among others, do we? But I wonder how saying I am among you as one who serves would affect how we jump on a Microsoft Teams or Zoom call for a work meeting or uh, some kind of family gathering, or or our midweek group, or a prayer meeting. In those latter cases, maybe thinking others is exactly what we need to see just how important it is for us to keep doing that, to get on those calls, so we might encourage others. Wherever we meet, however we meet, we must enter the room like Jesus does thinking who can i serve how can i get on my knees here and build up and encourage others the same goes i think for how we enter our houses where we spend so much time now and even how we come down to the dinner table or the breakfast table remember fiona challenging me about that a number of years ago um where my uh, commute home was a lot longer than it is uh, these days. Uh, and I, just after the dashing through the traffic um, and the busyness of the day, I came home with my mind still buzzing, distracted, and, and still elsewhere. So I took to spending the drive home, just offloading the things of the day in prayer to the Lord Jesus and asking him to help me enter the home. Thinking about how I could serve Fiona and the kids. Oh, the difference it made, folks. The difference it made. Who knew prayer made such a difference, eh? <sighs> to come to the dinner table, walking in, seeking to be a blessing rather than a burden. Thinking, I am among you. As one who serves. To stand for Jesus means being a servant like Jesus. But secondly, it also means to stand for Jesus means being an outcast like Jesus. Jesus doesn't pretend for a minute that going his way and having an others focused attitude will be easy. So he prepares his disciples to. And also, therefore, us for the battles that lie ahead. Firstly, by warning us to expect supernatural hostility. In verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, he's talking here to Simon. You see that. But if you've got a Bible open in front of you at home, you'll see in the footnotes there that the, the you there is actually Plural. So he's talking to them all. He's saying you need to know that Satan has asked to put you all through the mill. He wants to cross you. Here's a question. Do you believe in the devil? I think we kind of laugh at that idea these days, don't we? But the Bible tells us that he is not the kind of cheeky cartoon character our culture has made him out to be. No. He's a sneaky, devious serpent, a vicious, roaring lion, a monstrous dragon who doesn't listen to reason and takes no prisoners. I wonder if we have the least idea of the battle we are in. I suspect not. Not really. You see, when we wobble, we sometimes think, why does life seem so unfair, so unreasonable, so sick and vicious, even? Why does it seem so much easier to doubt Jesus than to stand for Him? Answer Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Folks, reckon on the battle. Jesus wants us to know, he wants to warn us that there is a devil and he will stop at nothing, literally nothing to stop us trusting in and living for him. And like Simon Peter and the disciples, we will be vulnerable to Satan's attacks, not only because of his hostility, but because the world around us will be hostile too. Look at verse 35, will you? And, And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Now, twice previously, Jesus has sent his disciples out into the world. And generally speaking, they got a pretty positive response. So they didn't need for anything. But now, he says in verse 36, things are going to be very different. Now, you will need to be ready for anything. Not literally. Jesus is not suggesting the disciples arm themselves literally here. As later that evening, when one of them takes a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, what does Jesus do? He doesn't clap and applaud. No, no, he goes, he says, no more of this. As he steps forward to heal the servant's ear. That's why many commentators suggest that when Jesus says, it is enough here in verse 38. He's not commenting on the sufficiency of the two swords that the disciples have managed to dig out and put in their knapsack. No, he's saying, Oh, enough of this. Don't be so daft. No, Jesus is not saying that we should literally take up arms. He's saying, Those who follow me, you need to know there will be hostility, even hatred. You need to be ready for that. Why? What has changed since he sent them out the first few times? Well, Jesus is about to show himself to not be the kind of Messiah people wanted. Verse 37. He says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Transgressors are those who cross the line of the law and therefore threaten to disrupt the equilibrium of our whole way of life. And that is how Jesus will be treated. The world will say, he was a dangerous man who claimed to be some kind of king. And he he set himself up against the authorities and, and all that we stood for. So we strung him up. We put him on a cross to show everyone just how deluded he was. And Jesus is saying here, if you stand with him, the world's verdict on you will be just the same as it was for him. Don't we know that? Though some folks are quite accepting of our faith, increasingly more and more people are saying that Christianity is a dangerous and deluded idea that is a threat to British values. And that we are now the bad guys, even as we step out to try and love and serve others. Many of us feel the bite of that, don't we? But we mustn't be surprised by it. Jesus warns us to stand by him means to be an outcast like him well thanks a bunch Ken. you might say (laughs) that has totally ruined my Sunday I thought you said uh, that that this was going to be medicine for our discouraged hearts (laughs) please 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 don't miss what Jesus says to Simon Peter in verse 31 Simon Simon behold Satan demanded to have you do you note know, there, that Satan has to ask? He demands to sift them as wheat. What does that mean? That there is someone greater, that there is someone he has to go to cap in hand to seek allowance. He is not the master. God is God and he still reigns. Jesus is king and Satan has to ask then look in verse 32 Jesus says but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail (laughs) he doesn't pray to the father that that Peter might be exempt oh come on father (laughs) Peter's so weak take him out of the battle no he prays keep Simon Peter's faith keep his faith What do we pray for each other? What do we pray for other people? I think we pray for almost anything else but faith often. But shouldn't that be what we're praying for each other? Shouldn't that be what we're praying for all the members of our congregation? That they stay faithful to the end. And especially for our children, shouldn't that be what we're praying for them? That despite all of the opposition and the hostility and the evil that they will face in this world that their faith will not fail. We must pray that for them, just as Jesus is praying that for us. And then even in advance of Peter's failure, Jesus again in verse 32 says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. (laughs) Jesus is so patient, isn't it? He's not like, uh, he's so patient with us. He's not like us with others, writing them off, even though we can see they're going to fail, even when they fail us. He has a purpose for Simon Peter's future usefulness that Simon cannot yet fully understand. And so this is going to be the man who stands up at Pentecost and he preaches in the Spirit in such power that 3,000 people turn in faith to Jesus that day. Folks, imagine Jesus were to come round to your house. Later on this afternoon, you were to sit at your kitchen table over a couple with him. And he was to say, I know you worry about what people think about you. I know you fear lots about the future. I know you sometimes feel weak and fragile in your faith. But I want you to know That Satan and the world, they have no real power over you. And I pray for you. Hebrews 7, verse 25, I pray for you all the time. And I am so committed to going on restoring and powerfully using you even when you fail. Wouldn't that strengthen your heart? Wouldn't that lift you up to face tomorrow? Don't miss it. Don't miss it like Peter does. Don't say to Jesus, Ah, it's okay. I've got this. I can handle it by myself. And don't miss verse 28 either. As Jesus says to those who are, Remember, squabbling over greatness. Wanting everybody else around them. Wanting their peers to think highly of them. People who are so unworthy about what Jesus is going to do for them on the cross. He says this to them. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Bible makes it clear that that is a promise for us too. And so see Jesus in your mind's eyes. He Sits opposite you, takes another sip from his coffee cup, and looks you in the eye and says, I want you in heaven. I want you sitting there, eating, drinking, feasting with me, reigning with me forever. After all, why was Jesus numbered with the transgressors? Why was he rejected? Why was he treated like a sinner? For us, for our sins, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be strengthened to stand with him and faithfully endure to the end and go to glory. I had a story recently. Let me finish with this. I heard a story recently about this young girl whose mother's hands were terribly disfigured and scarred. And children being children, they mocked her for her mother's hands so that she was incredibly embarrassed and ashamed of them. But then one day as she grew up, she asked her mom, what happened? Why are your hands the way they are? And so her mother told her the story, the story of how one day there was this fire in the family home, and her daughter's jacket caught fire. And she put the fire out with her bare hands and saved her life. And so the daughter looked again at her mother's hands and she drew them to her. And she kissed them. The hands that she had been so embarrassed by all of a sudden seemed beautiful to her because they showed her. They represented to her just how much her mother loved her and folks brothers and sisters we may be mocked for our faith in Jesus and be unsettled and tempted to doubt and feel embarrassed or ashamed by him but when you look at why he was numbered with the transgressions, transgressors doesn't that make you love him? The kingdom of this, king, of this world is a kingdom of dog-eat-dog, dog, where people lord over one another, always saying, me first. And it will end in dust. It's going nowhere. But if you stand with this king, he calls you into his wonderful kingdom, where there'll be no more lording it over others, no more injustice and, and oppression, And no more sadness and death. Every tear will be wiped dry. And he says that we will laugh and shout with joy because we will be with him. How wonderful that would be. And so Jesus says to us, whatever happens, whatever happens, stand firm. Stand firm. Let's take a minute of quiet to pray that through for ourselves before we either listen or stand and sing our final song. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers.